Greetings, everyone. This is Canadian Meets the South, episode 15. Today, I'll be reviewing James McPherson's book, Jefferson Davis, Embattled Rebel. Now, first thing um, that James McPherson says was his introduction. He said quite clearly that he was a Union man. His sympathies lay with Lincoln and the North. And obviously he believes that slavery is wrong. But because of that, it wouldn't be fair for him to make a book about Jefferson Davis and constantly compare him to Lincoln, which often the two of them are compared. He tries to evaluate Jefferson Davis on his own merits. Now, he, he goes, uh, well, as president, doesn't really talk about Davis's relationship with President Zachary Taylor too much, or really much of his early life, it's, it's really focused on Davis's presidency. But um, when the first convention among the first seven states was called, Davis hoped to be sent uh, to be chosen by the delegates as as general in chief of the army of Confederate army, but instead he was chosen as president, well provisional president first, and then of course later permanent president under the permanent constitution. But um, he was first the provisional president in. 1861 to 1862. And he wasn't exactly happy. He wanted to do the fighting himself. He, after all, he was a soldier. And soldier for involved in more than one war. He was involved in the Black Hawk War, I believe, in 1835. And later, he got involved in the Mexican-American War, in which um, he rekindles his relationship with General Zachary Taylor. See, he was Zachary Taylor's former son-in-law at that time. In, 30, in 1835, so he he married his first wife, uh, Sarah Knox Taylor, and it lasted for three months because they both contracted malaria and Sarah had died, and it was. Not a very happy time for Zachary Taylor, obviously. 
and you could say he maybe well i i don't wanna say something wrong but it seemed like he was not happy with jefferson davis after that but um during one of the battles i don't know if it was the battle of buena vista or it was one of the battles during the mexican-american war in which uh davis did something heroic while fighting under taylor and then taylor had said sir i have misjudged you my daughter was it seems my daughter was a better judge of of character of a man than i ever was and their their relationship got better and even though taylor became the whig president uh presidential candidate and eventually wins the election of 1848 uh davis didn't actually support taylor despite loving him because his like uh he said in his book the rise and fall of the confederate government taylor's advisors were all whigs and they would listen to him and he would he would surely listen to them more than than to davis but they still maintained a very good relationship he uh taylor still treated him very well as like an like a son even and and invited him and his second wife Irina to you know socials before Taylor eventually dies but well that's that's enough about Zachary Taylor this book was about Davis's presidency um I guess you can say Toombs, Robert Toombs was kind of jealous of Davis, but Davis was selected because he had both military experience and political experience. Before the Mexican-American War, he, he first... I believe served in the House of Representatives. And then afterwards, he was a senator. Uh, I could be wrong about that. And certainly, he was against the Compromise of eighteen fifty. As a friend of John C. Calhoun. And, you know, he chaired famous Committee of Thirteen in eighteen sixty one. Which, uh, in 1860 to 61, which it was, which voted on whether or not to extend the Missouri Compromise Line to the Pacific. This was, this was called the Crittenden Compromise. But Lincoln had told the Republicans on the committee that uh, they shouldn't compromise at all. And so there were five commit five Repu Republicans, eight Democrats, and because all the all five Democrats had voted against it, 
Davis and Toombs switched their vote to vote against it because they wanted a majority of both parties to pass the compromise if if any if we, they were going to get somewhere other otherwise if it was just voted before by democrats it wouldn't uh there would still be sectional strife but um after you know not long after the committee of 13 had failed mississippi and the other states had uh, left the Union. And he was, and eventually, after the con- when the Constitution was, uh, the Provisional Constitution was drafted and Davis was so elected, he had to form his own cabinet. And there were six positions on the cabinet, right? And he, as president, would be the seventh person, I guess. And it was kind of political what he did. Where he would choose one person from each state so that each state, each of the seven states, would have representation in the, in the, in the cabinet, which... I don't know if I like that, but that's it's kind of political. That's of how what what he did. And then, what I found interesting was that I think his name was Mallory, the Secretary of of the Navy. He was from Florida, and he would stay at his post as Secretary of the Navy for the entirety of the Confederacy's existence. Meanwhile, the it was contrasted to the Secretary of War, which was always changing. Uh, people kept, uh, I think it had five different people, or maybe six. But you will see this politics of states' rights again pop up in the future. In After... The firing of Fort Sumter by General Beauregard and Lincoln calling the tr- 70, uh, for 75,000 volunteer troops to put down the rebellion in the South. Quote-unquote rebellion. Uh, four states join, including uh, Virginia, North Carolina, Arkansas, and Tennessee. And the capital is moved from Montgomery, Alabama to Richmond, Virginia. And then, of course, what happens at the beginning of the war was this was putting, was scattering the defenses so that each of the seven states had some defense. And, you know, when you do that, it is have a more scattered approach, spread out approach, rather than a, rather than a concentrated approach. Uh, it's easy to break 
a point on the wall of the scattered approach compared to a concentrated approach. However, he did this because all seven states well, were considered uh, sovereign and independent, just as it was mentioned in the permanent Confederate Constitution, and even that principle was there in the Provisional Constitution. Davis did that for, you know, politics, obviously, balancing politics with trying to win. And, you know, he was selected unanimously by the delegates in both the Provisional and the Permanent Constitution. But not long after that, they would get angry. Now, uh, there would be anti-Davis forces, both well, both in the Congress, in the Confederate Congress, as well as the press. And they would really not be happy about that. Now, we can talk about uh, the first Battle of Bull Run, or first Manassas, which was the, the first battle of the war in which Davis, well, the Confederates win, and Joe Johnston and Beauregard, I believe, had fought in that war. Now, after that, after the first battle, because they had won, it had felt they were. They were engulfed in their own victory, but they should have pressed forward and, and took Washington, D.C. And I believe Beauregard had said that if he would give me 10,000 men, then I can take Washington, D.C. But they didn't press on and... I think that was one of the major mistakes that Davis had had made. He had not pushed forward after the victory at, at Bull Run, the first that first Manassas. And what can I say? Not long after that you would have the it would be clear who were the first the top 5 generals in the confederate army at the top would be samuel cooper who was actually born in new jersey he was he, he never really fought he it was a desk job as adjutant general and inspector general Next would be Albert Sidney Johnston, who, as you know, would, if you don't know, he dies in 1862, I believe, in 
I, uh, it's on the tip of the, my tongue, but I don't remember. He he dies in the Shenandoah Valley, I believe, or he dies in the West, fighting Ulysses Grant. And third would be Robert E. Lee, who was initially just going to be Davis's military advisor. Then fourth would be Joseph Johnston. And then fifth would be General Beauregard, P, uh, Pierre T.G. Beauregard. And those last two men were, were not happy that three guys were outranked them who hadn't even fought yet. Um, and, well, the, really the Congress chose them first. They chose it, made it that way, because that was how they would have been ranked in the Union Army. As in, Samuel Cooper was the highest ranking officer in the Union Army, if, um, if you look at all the Confederates. Um, and, what else can I say? Joe Johnston was, I think, only a lieutenant colonel. While the other guys had that were colonels, the the top three guys were colonels in the Union Army. So that was how it went. And you know, it he didn't uh, Jefferson Davis didn't just arbitrarily put sign that no like choose them in that order. This was what Congress saw, and then he signed it. But um, um, but yeah, Robert E. Lee wasn't initially on. Well, wasn't originally part of the the fighting force. But when Joe Johnston gets injured in eighteen sixty two, Robert E. Lee replaces him, and the army becomes known as the Army of Northern Virginia. And then, of course, Robert E. Lee is certainly more famous than Joe Johnston. Um, so there were a lot of details about the war and a lot of politics. One of the, uh, I, I should say there were, there was a trifecta of Georgians who were very critical of. Davis, that would be Joseph Brown, the governor of Georgia, Robert Toombs, who was initially the secretary of war, but resigned um, and became a general to fight, to fight, to actually fight, and Vice President Alexander H. Stevens, and they were very critical of him. Brown was often demanded for more more troops for for defense of Georgia but Davis had said if I give you more troops they're all I have then I have to give every other state more troops to defend and I can't do that and fight the war to win Toombs was obviously 
jealous. He was, you know, saw himself as a leader. If Davis was a leader among the Southern Democrats, Toombs was a leader of the Southern Whigs, although he his party history is a bit complicated. He founded the Constitutional Union Party, I think in 51, and left the Whigs. He was along with Alexander H. Stevens. And then Toombs had joined the Democrats in 53. I, I could be wrong, but he joined before the Whigs disintegrated. And so um, Davis had always been a Democrat. So there were, certainly there is a, rival, a rivalry between the two of them. But Toombs was a leader of the Southern Whigs in Georgia. What else can I say? Stevens, in 1862, he goes back to his his uh, home, in I think, in Crawford, Georgia, because he realizes that there's nothing for him to do there um, in Richmond. And often he would side with his governor on certain issues rather than the president of the United States, Jefferson Davis. And, you know, the governor was also not happy with conscription. Um, and a lot of, he got a lot of men exempted from the draft, which was not Davis's, it's not something Davis was happy with. And... You know, in the rise and fall of the Confederate government, Davis had said, there are two ways to, to get an army, Vo uh, volunteers and conscription. I, the Constitution gave me the power to raise an army. So, and it didn't, and so I, I could have done either way. Certainly, both the Union and the Confederacy had conscription although originally it was volunteers for both of them but they did draft young men and another thing is they both suspended habeas corpus civil liberties weren't exactly the greatest in either of them they they were both committed to winning the war, both Lincoln and Davis. But here's the difference when for that, for habeas corpus. Lincoln did it unilaterally, while Davis did it through the Congress. He needed Congress, as in David, he needed Congress to, to, to pass it before he could sign it, sign the suspension of habeas corpus. And this is a, habeas corpus is a, a big thing it's not it's not just about following the constitution if you think about the anglo tradition it wasn't since the magna carta in 1215 in which king john had suspended the writ of habeas corpus in habeas in the writ of in habeas the writ of habeas corpus ensures that you don't just get arrested for nothing and they don't the authorities don't tell you what you're arrested for, and then you stay in prison indefinitely. 
because that's what King John, that's the type of thing King John would do. And that's the thing that that Lincoln would do. Right? He suspended the writ of habeas corpus. Of course, the Congress follows up and does it afterwards. But the fact that he does it unilaterally and then Congress only, you know, catches up is that is not constitutional on on Lincoln's part and he should have been impeached for that that's that's one of the the big things of the Lincoln's Lincoln critics from the time of the copperheads all the way to today that that is one of the chief that's one of the things that they always bring up and it is it is valid to bring it up because it's not because that is violating his oath um but um let's uh let's talk about uh something else i think his uh about more of the war davis had davis is Sorry, <laughs> later, Joe Johnson recovers and he's put in command of an army. And originally, he was there defending Atlanta. And he gets replaced by General Hood. And it's because, and I think it's because Davis wanted wanted Joe Johnson to fight uh, Sherman's army, William Tecumseh Sherman's army. And he was, you know, more, more uh, hesitant to do that. More careful with men's lives, you could say. But, uh, he, but Davis replaces him with Hood, General Hood, and Hood charges at Sherman's army three times, and loses all three times. Uh, loses badly all three times. So then, when before the election of eighteen sixty four and the, the for the presidential election, Davis. Oh uh, no! Sorry. Sherman destroys Atlanta and at the defeat at of Atlanta is uh, squarely placed at the hands of at the feet of Jefferson Davis the uh, the Congress the Confederate Congress and the press the anti-Davis press were really really not happy with with that one if he had not replaced Hood. If he had not replaced Joe Johnson with Hood, and then Joe Joe Johnson would never have done those three charges that would that whittled down his own army would have whittled down his own army, and then Atlanta would not have been captured at that time. Would not have been. Oh, uh, and that would. Because the ca the the sacking of Atlanta 
was was uh, one of the big, you could say, factors in the Republicans winning winning the 1864 election. Obviously, it's not just the only factor. Certainly, there was voter fraud um, that the Union Army was guilty of. <laughs> but that was one of the big things. But even before the election, Davis was, was not putting his hopes on a Democrat winning on on the Democrats winning the, the election. He was focused on winning the war. Or, you could say also, trying to get uh, England and France to recognize the Confederacy. He actually sent one person way too late to, to go to England and, and France. In France, uh, I don't even remember his name. This is some secret mission that Congress didn't, the Confederate Congress did not know about. In France, and he told him, he told the, the secret mission guy, um, he would, uh, he was willing to put abolition on the table because um, independence mattered more than slavery to, to Jefferson Davis. And I'm glad that at least James McPherson pointed that out, that Jefferson Davis valued independence over slavery. Um, and for, for that mission, he went to France to meet Napoleon III. And he said basically he would do that if, if Britain would do that, but... So he had met with Lord Palmerston, the, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, and, and he did have some sympathy towards the, the South, but there's no way that Queen Elizabeth would have supported it. And, well, maybe, maybe it's not just that. He also was, wouldn't have done that either. And I'm not sure if William, well, I'm, I'm not sure if Lord John Russell would have. And some people think if if Gladstone was prime minister, he would have. Gladstone became prime minister in six in eighteen sixty six, one year after. Oh, eighteen sixty six? No, he eighteen sixty eight, he became prime minister. This is one year after. After um, the. Sorry, three years after the, the end of the war. Because this is how it was. For the, for the entirety of the war, Lord Palmerston was the president. No, was the prime minister of Great Britain. So the surrender at Appomattox happened in April. Palmerston dies in August. And he is succeeded by Lord John Russell, who loses the election of '66 to the, the Conservative Party. And two years later, in 68, or, or uh, he, uh, it is William Gladstone who becomes the leader of the Liberal Party. 
which was what which was the party of Lord Palmerston and Lord John Russell. And uh yeah that um during during the war though, when he was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, William Gladstone had given a speech which you could say was sort of sympathetic to to the South. He had said that Jefferson Davis had created a nation. The 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 South had an, an army and a navy and a, a government and he said that Jefferson Davis had created a nation. Even though maybe that's not exactly what happened. <laughs> he wasn't the one who draft who helped draft the constitution, the provisional or the permanent constitution. He was he was the one who was chosen to be president, which was different. And he, he certainly was not pushing for secession of Mississippi when he was the senator of Mississippi. The United States Senator from Mississippi was not trying to undermine the the institution of the United States federal government. Um in back in back in that time. So I wouldn't say he helped he, he created the, the nation. <laughs> certainly. And there's also, you know, a problem with the word of nation. Was was um the provisional and the permanent constitutions of the Confederate government were more decentralist than than uh the United States Constitution. And the United States Constitution is not supposed to establish a nation. It's supposed to establish a federal republic. But, uh... Yeah, I'm... Where was I going with this? What's one more thing I could say about Davis? So, uh, I already forgot, I'm sorry. McPherson, you know, concludes the book by saying if that it may not have mattered who the South have, would have chosen to be president because uh, they were outnumbered. There's no way, is there anyone who would have won had, uh, how uh, there were a lot of mistakes, sure that Davis made, but would would there have been anyone better and who would have made less mistakes? You you wouldn't really know that. And um, the South was outnumbered. It was unless unless they had won Gettysburg or Vicksburg in eighteen sixty three. Or if Atlanta hadn't shown, hadn't fallen, or something. If something, or if they had taken Washington D.C. There, there are so many what if scenarios. You don't know if. You don't really know if there was anyone better. And to, for for than Jefferson Davis at the time, he did, he did his best. He did what. As someone who had both political and military experience he did his best to in the situation he was given and the and he was elected unanimously 
by the delegates. So there, it's not like they knew they had someone else, the South knew someone else in mind that they could just pick for president. And, but, and like his relationship with the generals, particularly Joe Johnston and General Beauregard, those two generals who really did not have um, a good relationship with him and his enemies, uh, Je Jefferson Davis's enemies in the Confederate Congress were, you know, sympathetic with those two generals. But, um, uh, he fought for independence. Okay, one last thing. The Hampton Roads Conference, which he sends Alexander H. Stevens and two other high-ranking members of Congress to what to join uh to negotiate peace, and he they and he told them um that they should have. Uh, they should they they cannot compromise on independence. And Lincoln, and I think Seward was with him. When, well, first uh first they met through General Grant, but then afterwards, um, the three delegates met with Lincoln and I think Seward or one other member of his cabinet, and. Lincoln said, if you get back in the Union right now, you can vote down the 13th Amendment and you can have slavery until the 20th century, until 1900. And then uh, by the way, um, Brazil had slavery until the 1880s. So, I mean, if you look back at it, Lincoln was promising them to have, sla to have slavery for longer than what Brazil would end up having, having slavery for. But I mean, that's just looking back. Like you wouldn't know how long Brazil would have slavery. And certainly there were some ex-Confederates who, who escaped to Brazil and they were called Confederados, but I, I didn't really do much research on that. Uh, the book doesn't really talk about this. And it really didn't bring that up either, how Lincoln had promised had said they could vote down the 13th Amendment if if the Confederate States got back into the Union. And uh, Jefferson Davis told told Stevens he cannot compromise on, on independence. And certainly Stevens was tempted to take up Lincoln on his offer. He was friends with Lincoln in the Congress, in the Congress from 47 to 49. Uh, the, the, this was back when James Polk was the president and, and, uh, the Whigs were against the Mexican, the Mexican American war. But Um, there's certainly, uh, Lincoln had a plan for reconstruction, like after the war, he would, he would be 
more tolerant than than you know the radical republicans were or were more it would be less hard on the south and he would want an alliance with the southern whigs who were many of whom uh, the former southern whigs who were many of whom were not were that thrilled about secession um not really that strong on states rights um people like alexander h stevens who at georgia secession convention had voted against secession and in his speech he said that slavery was better protected in the union because if they leave the union and then they're defeated in war by the north they don't get to keep slavery and Stevens was right, but uh, he so he was certainly tempted to keep, not to to do that, but he to take Lincoln up on his offer. But Davis had told him they need independence was first. He cannot compromise on independence, and. Uh, James McPherson doesn't really talk doesn't talk about this and I don't know like I don't want to say it's because he's a union man he's a mainstream northern historian but that's though, though, unfortunately that's what I was thinking so um before I get into Canadian politics let's just say that uh, Lincoln, well, that, he, uh, McPherson didn't think that Davis was that awful, and he, he did what he had to do for independence. That's it. And, well, I mean, he, he, sure, he made mistakes, but who wouldn't? Is there anyone else better than Davis? And there's no, there was no clear answer for that. There was, who would, who would have known someone who was better than Davis? He was the most popular man for the job, and that's that was what people picked him for. Even though later there would be some some uh, opposition to Davis in the Confederate Congress and in the press. Now, let's talk about t today's today's politics, uh, Canadian politics. Um, so. Right now, there are two leadership races for the conservatives. For conservatives, well, conservative leadership races. One in Alberta, due to Jason Kenney resigning as leader. Well, he he's still governing as premier, but eventually he he will have to step aside for whoever's support whoever wins the UCP leadership race. And you know, it's really funny. Most of uh, most of the the leadership candidates um, I don't know some of them yeah, one of the big things is Albert the Alberta Sovereignty Act in as being debated Daniel Smith who may be considered a front runner in the race is really 
pushing for this thing known as the Alberta Sovereignty Act, which would essentially resist and nullify federal actions deemed to be against the interest of the federal, well, against Alberta's interest. Now, you know, initially I was happy about this one. You know, it, it sounds like the principles of 1798, but this is just Alberta's interest, not necessarily constitutional. This is not, this is not necessarily, what, how do you say this? Anything that the federal government does that is unconstitutional. It's just Alberta's interest. And um, there are some th key things to consider in for differences between the states and look and Canada. In the states, each state is considered free, sovereign, and independent, while uh, in 1867, that's not exactly what each province was. Supposedly, the federal government is supreme, more supreme, even though I would say in certain areas, Canada is more decentralist, particularly on education, although there was this, you could say this left-wing anti-hate platform, uh, anti-hate um, pamphlet being spread around in schools created by the federal government. But traditionally, the realm of education, as um, described in Section 93 of the Constitution Act, 1867, uh, traditionally, the education was exclusively provincial. And that's something that I like. It's the, it's one, it's the one of the big things in the differences between Canada and the United States, it is more separate. Uh, it, there's certainly more of a separation. Well, you see in, in the United States that there's a lot of federal regulation of, of schools and there's even a Department of Education. Funny thing is Ronald Reagan promised that he would scrap it and the federal uh, the Department of Education and he didn't he lowered the funding but it wasn't scrapped to this day it still exists but the federal the, the Department of Education is unconstitutional at least we don't have that in the Canadian federal government but going back to the sovereignty act um well, well I guess one more thing one more difference is that the provinces aren't technically equal because they're not as they're not free sovereign and independent and they're also they also did not join Canada equally. There's some statutes that were put in when they joined the Confederation. Um I guess one thing to note is that Alberta and Saskatchewan used to be together in this territory known as Buffalo. And then they were got they got split. This is back in nineteen oh five. When Wilfrid Laurier was the president, was the prime minister, and I don't know if that necessarily cuts their power, or, but um, if you look at, but Alberta and Saskatchewan 
Alberta, there is there is a lot more separatist sentiment. I think I was watching a, an interview with Maxime Bernier, and he was saying that I think there were more, there were a little more. It's it's all in the thirties, but there were proportionally there were more Albertans who wanted separation than Quebecers, but it's still both in the thirties. And then even in Ontario, there are people who want separation, but it's lower. And hmm. Remember one more thing. There were, uh, there was a, there was a referendum on equalization, and and Alberta voted to end equalization, even though uh, the province can't just do that; it has to go through the constitution. Um. So, but the Alberta Sovereignty Act. By uh, in the name it uses the word sovereignty, and obviously the leftists who uh, who love centralization in Canada they obviously were against it, and hmm, I remember <laughs> reading about there's this one far-left professor at Waterloo, Emmett McFarlane, who I remember he his tweet got blown up when Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed. He said, burn down the Supreme Court. And then afterwards, he locked his Twitter account. And, and this guy, he's saying the, the Alberta Sovereignty Act would be unconstitutional. But of course he would say that. And the thing is, it's not like Alberta... Or like Alberta wants the same powers that Quebec has at le- at the very least, and during the se- and there there was certainly you know nullification going on in BC when it comes to marijuana before marijuana was legalized, or in Quebec in the seventies when it came to abortion. Um, this is before the Morgan Teller case in eighty eight which struck down the abortion law so that there were no abortion laws until up until this day and you know it's so funny how um how uh some of them some of the leadership candidates are trying to in in the alberta's race are trying to sidestep the abortion issue because after Roe v. Wade fell, Rachel Notley demanded from the leadership candidates essentially where their stance was on abortion. And some of them said that they were pro-choice, while others were like Brian Jean. He, I think he used, he, many years ago, he used to identify as pro-life. Now not, he doesn't really identify as a social conservative. And Brian Jean tried to, when he was asked, I think he sort of sidestepped the issue by saying abortion really is federal jurisdiction. And Notley was trying to divide Albertans, or he did not want to divide Albertans on this issue. And then, I forgot, I was reading on, it was CTV Edmonton's 
um, website. Uh, there was another guy who identified as pro-life, but he said he would not do anything. So <laughs> you could see, oh, uh, I guess Danielle Smith, uh, she said she's pro-choice, but not just on abortion, but certainly on all medical decisions, including vaccines, which I guess that I, that's an understandable position, and it's certainly better than Rachel Notley's position, or the, the far left's position, which would be to pro-choice on abortion, but not on vaccines. So, um, Smith shows herself, well, I think she's trying to show herself as consistent. Although I do, some, some people, like in the first UCP leadership race, uh, uh, debate, which I didn't really watch, but there was a clip uh, saying that, uh, showing, and on Twitter that I watched, and one guy said, Daniel Smith has crossed the floor, in which Smith talks about her, about how they can reach net zero through the private sector, but, um, this lip service to net zero is really, it's really, it's not good. And some people are really not liking that. Like I can understand, I can sort of sympathize with it, with the free market, the non-government approach, but the lip service for net zero is, some people really don't like that. And it's, can she rec regain the trust? Because if you don't know anything about Smith, she was the, f she was the leader of the opposition from 2012 to 2015, no, 2014, I think she crossed the floor. She was, she was the leader of the wild rose party because back then the PCs were in power and then she crossed the floor along with six other MLAs and, um, that just that that her crossing the floor helped helped uh, destroy. Well, I mean, really destroy not just well. It it led to the NDP's winning. Um, as in back then, it was the uh, Rachel Notley who was the leader of the NDP hadn't fully consolidated the vote. But then afterwards. The, the left-wing vote, because the liberals were still... The operator liberals were still... Still had a couple seats, I think. But then... But now she has fully consolidated the left-wing vote. How it works in Alberta is that... Now, is that she has a... That Rachel Notley's NDP has an iron grip over Edmonton. There's only one MLA from Edmonton, Casey Madu. He's the ju He was the justice minister. And then Edmonton plus Calgary make up a little over 50% of the seats. So the city folk have the potential to outvote the rural folk. Just those two cities. And if, if Notley wins, like if, if she's able to win enough Calgary seats like to win Calgary, or enough Calgary plus some small some of the surrounding areas, some suburban areas, 
then she wins then she gets to become pre premier for a second time and the ndp gets back into power but um we'll see which type of of uh leader, leader they they choose well the Alberta conservatives choose because what i this is about fighting for like the soul of you know sovereignty like alberta the alberta sovereignty act is a really big issue in alberta politics now and some some of the leadership candidates do support it while others don't and i like that 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 is one of the main issues but um the other issue is um but like the when it comes to abortion like okay if you talking about abortion there are three abortion clinics in Alberta, one in Edmonton, two in Calgary. Now, um, and obviously they're funded by the province because even though crime is federal jurisdiction, um, the healthcare is supposedly uh, a provincial jurisdiction, even though uh, the federal government funds helps fund these the healthcare systems so um i don't know i get this feeling you get you have in canada you know as My michael malice would say conservatism is progressivism driving the speed limit it's as if most of these if not all of these albertans albertan leadership people they 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 aren't pro-life or they don't have a pro-life agenda. And that leads me to this, uh, the Conservative Party of Canada's leadership race. There's only currently one who, one leadership candidate who's, who identifies as pro-life. That would be Leslie Lewis. Now, Roman Baber, who is not a social conservative, he would be okay with a free vote on abortion, but the other three candidates in the race are resolutely pro-choice. That would be Scott Aitchison, Jean Charest, and Pierre Polyev. And, uh, you know, Polyev, I, I really dislike him he's the most popular one and i mean i do i dislike jean Charest even more but polyev is a career politician even more so than jean Charest. i mean Charest at least worked had some private sector experience now i don't like that private sector experience either it was working with huawei who as you know is a chinese um telecom company they make phone <laughs> they make phones right right and um what else and but people think that huawei would spy on canada and other countries um china would spy through huawei and another thing to mention would be um 
I guess Jean Charest is also like he also embodies that uh, I that mentality of conservatism is progressivism driving the speed limit because in nineteen ninety he actually did vote for the uh, the abortion bill, which would have there would be a restriction on abortion. It died in the Senate due to like it was a tie vote. And because it taught, and the speaker of the house, he, because it was a tie, it wasn't because he's he was necessarily no the speaker of the senate. He it wasn't because he was necessarily for or against the bill, but because it was a tie, he he voted down. He had he believed he had to vote down, the bill the. Uh, in the senate, and people, are saying that's the reason why Canada has no abortion law. As in, the reason why it failed in the Senate, they're saying, is because they're, because both pro-choicers and resolute pro-lifers weren't willing to compromise. What? And, of course, the pro-choice people won out in the end. And the pro-life people at that time, they were saying that those who voted, those who, who voted for it would go to hell, basically, because allowing for a compromise on life. But there's, there's a problem with all of that. The Senate doesn't answer to the voters. It's so dumb. Some people think that it's because of that. No, it's, it's because... It's because the Senate doesn't answer to anyone. They're there until they're 75. And they get they can be expelled from caucus or whatever. But they're there for life. Well, until 75. And on, well, I guess if I guess the, the whole Senate can expel a certain member for some for something doing if, if, if he or she had done something egregious. But no, the the issue is how the Senate works. That's if you have a pro pro life bill passed through the House of Commons today, I'm gonna tell you it's the Senate that's gonna block it. Okay, and this isn't. It's it's dumb, and we some people like some pro lifers think. That it's it's because of the unwillingness to compromise at, at, in nineteen ninety at that time that there wouldn't have been there would have been some abortion law and there isn't and it's it's because no it's because of the Senate and now. What I like about Roman Baber is that uh, he he did say he's going to end equalization without having to change the constitution. <laughs> to change the Senate, you need to change the constitution. But for equalization, what I like is he he consistently says he is against socialism. He's not well. He's he and he believes in free markets. He. He not only 
is against um, supply management, which was a policy started by Justin Trudeau's father back in 71. Well, it came into effect 72. It was, I think it was passed by, in, by the liberal government in 71, but really came into effect 72. But there's also, um, there's also, uh, and, and unfortunately, like, yeah, that is also the whole, as Michael Malice would say, conservatism is progressivism driving the speed limit. The modern conservative party now embraces this Trudeau policy, just like they embrace <laughs> his, uh, uh, just, uh, Pierre Trudeau's multiculturalism. Although this conservative party wasn't the first conservative party, the the PCs under Brian Mulroney had a conservative had a multiculturalism act back in nineteen eighty eight. But you see a pattern here, and then now for abortion, most of the leadership candidates still remaining. Patrick Brown, the mayor of Brampton, who was actually disqualified, and this, um. I can talk. I can talk about that for a long time, but then this podcast is going to go for much longer than I want. But unfortunately, this is what we're given, and I really do like Maxine Bernier. Um, policy certainly. He had said it's not just being against supply management; it's also having being open to debate on abortion, which I like. Um, I was, I was in Brampton a couple of days ago and told to listen to Roman Baber and, uh, we talked a little bit. I just asked him about his view on China and then he said like, yeah, he, he does not like communism and China has locked down tens of millions of healthy people. So, you know, that's a good example. I, I should have talked to him more about Taiwan because, um, because you know, as you know, Nancy Pelosi has come to Taiwan now. What what are the reasons? Um, who knows? I mean, I won't get into that. Um, but um, what can I say? Um. Uh, today is August third. Is uh, the the debate between uh the <laughs> it's really three people three person debate Jean Charest, Roman Baber, and Scott Aitchison, and uh, Leslie Lewis and Pierre Polyev canceled. Well, Pierre Polyev was uh he refused to go. I think he has nothing to gain from it, and I think it can only hurt him if he has another as a third debate. Wells Lewis, well she I don't know, she she demanded first to to have certain questions addressed and they didn't address them, so I don't know. Um and so uh, and I don't know, she focused on just campaigning across the country and then finally I sh- I should say that Kong um it showed that uh, recently the donor donors donors were donor information was released for the second quarter, and Pierre Polyev is miles ahead of everyone. 
uh, Jean Charest is a distant second place when it comes to number of when it comes to amount of money raised. While Leslie Lewis has more donors, but you know Aitchison and Baber at the bottom. Uh, Aitchison's at the very bottom, and then Baber is just behind Charest when it comes to number of voters. I think. Um, Aitchison is also is at the very bottom. When it comes to amount of money raised, I don't remember the, the the numbers, but yeah, um, this, this podcast is getting a little longer. Um, and I know the title is Jefferson Davis, but um, I wasn't getting. I hope to see if if Baber wins, who certainly I like his I like a lot of his policies, even though I de- identify as pro life. And Leslie Lewis is pro life. Certainly, Baber winning would would also be you know good. <laughs> he was saying, "Don't vote for the PPC, please. We cannot afford more Justin Trudeau. We cannot afford a vote split." And well, we'll see. We'll see. Um, if Charest wins, and <laughs> he's gonna drive more people to the PPC, so we'll we'll see. I like the PPC's views on decentralization as well. Um, then that, there's a, the, the, one of the big differences between Baber and really every uh, and between Maxine Bernier and Baber, well Baber plus all of the other candidates was that they were against these uh, discriminatory laws of like, religious symbols in Quebec. Well, as Bernier keeps saying, I respect provincial jurisdiction. So, uh, certainly, Bernier is much more decentralist on this. But, um, yeah, I'm th- I think I'm going to end it there. I th- I'm sorry I ranted for quite a while. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe. Um, some people, like, I get to their comments really late like there are a couple of people who've commented um i'll comment more i'll i'll try to i know i'm sorry if i respond to your comment really late but uh or sometimes i don't even respond i just press the like i like your comment and you don't get the notification but that's that's okay um i'm glad that some people are watching even though not many people are and thank you for i think there are more people who listen on anchor.fm or wherever podcasts get distributed so thank you for that um this has been canadian meets the south episode 15 and uh i hope to talk to you more later thank you